0: Welcome to Hack Stack Level 3. We will now be giving you all the hacks you need to build deeper connections and stronger relationships with the people you care about. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first two levels starting with episode number 1. And now, let's start hacking. Here's your host, Koz.
1: Hey everyone. Welcome to the big show. Uh, Hopefully you guys like the last episode. Again, I know it was a lofty claim. Never have another argument again in your life. And true, that is easier said than done. But it's definitely something that you can strive for and something that you can uh, practice and develop your skills and become more adept at not losing your cool during discussions. Because when you lose your cool, that escalates into arguments. And if you give permission to the other person to sort of say what you think is on their mind, both of those things working together go a long, long way toward developing good, healthy relationships. Now, this may seem like an obvious question, but why do we want to develop good, healthy, strong relationships? Well, to start to answer that question, that's what we're going to start the episode off with. I mean, we are, after all, at level three. You guys will listen to a lot lot of episodes, and we're at level three, and we're talking about relationships, and there's a huge, huge benefit to having healthy, positive relationships. I know that sounds kind of common sense, and it is, but now there is some scientific research backing that up. So we are going to listen to a TED Talk, and for those of you that don't know what a TED Talk is... It's basically a nonprofit group that's dedicated to spreading worthwhile ideas. So you have a bunch of people from all different walks of life, most of which are really, really smart and really highly achieved in their given fields, and they will give a talk on a variety of subject matter, and this one in particular deals with what makes a life good, right? living the good life, and some of the scientific research that backs up. Uh, the claim of what does, in fact, make a good life. So right now, we're going to start off the episode listening to a TED Talk given by Robert Waldinger, who is a professor at Harvard Medical School. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this clip, and it sets up the entire uh, podcast episode quite nicely. So here it is. Check it out.
0: What keeps us healthy and happy as we go through life? If you were going to invest now in your future best self, where would you put your time and your energy? There was a recent survey of millennials asking them what their most important life goals were. And over 80% said that a major life goal for them was to get rich. And another 50% of those same young adults said that another major life goal was to become famous. And we're constantly told to lean in to work, to push harder (laughs) and achieve more. We're given the impression that these are the things that we need to go after in order to have a good life. Pictures of entire lives, of the choices that people make and how those choices work out for them, those pictures are almost impossible to get. Most of what we know about human life we know from asking people to remember the past. And as we know, hindsight is anything but 20 We forget vast amounts of what happens to us in life, and sometimes memory is downright creative. But what if we could watch entire lives as they unfold through time? What if we could study people from the time that they were teenagers all the way into old age, to see what really keeps people happy and healthy. We did that. The Harvard study of adult development may be the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. For 75 years, we've tracked the lives of 724 men year after year, asking about their work, their home lives, their health, and of course asking all along the way without knowing how their life stories were going to turn out. Studies like this are exceedingly rare. Almost all projects of this kind fall apart within a decade because too many people drop out of the study or funding for the research dries up or the researchers get distracted or they die and nobody moves the ball further down the field. But through a combination of luck and the persistence of several generations of researchers, this study has survived. About 60 of our original 724 men are still alive, still participating in the study, most of them in their 90s. And we are now beginning to study the more than 2,000 children of these men and I'm the fourth director of the study. (laughs) Since 1938, we've tracked the lives of two groups of men. The first group started in the study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. And the second group that we have followed was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements, many without hot and cold running water. When they entered the study, all of these teenagers were interviewed, they were given medical exams. We went to their homes and we interviewed their parents. And then these teenagers grew up into adults who entered all walks of life. They became factory workers and lawyers and bricklayers and doctors, one president of the United States. Some developed alcoholism. A few developed schizophrenia. Some climbed the social ladder from the bottom all the way to the very top, and some made that journey in the opposite direction. The founders of this study would never, in their wildest dreams, have imagined that I would be standing here today, 75 years later, telling you that the study still continues. Every two years, our patient and dedicated research staff calls up our men and asks them if we can send them yet one more set of questions about their lives. Many of the inner-city Boston men ask us why do you keep wanting to study me? My life just isn't that interesting. The Harvard men never ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> to get the clearest picture of these lives, we don't just send them questionnaires. We interview them in their living rooms, we get their medical records from their doctors, we draw their blood. We scan their brains. We talk to their children. We videotape them talking with their wives about their deepest concerns. And when, about a decade ago, we finally asked the wives if they would join us as members of the study, many of the women said, you know, it's about time. (laughs) So what have we learned? What are the lessons that come from the tens of thousands of pages of information that we've generated on these lives? well, the lessons aren't about wealth or fame or working harder and harder. The clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. We've learned three big lessons about relationships. The first is that social connections are really good for us and that loneliness kills It turns out that people who are more socially connected to family, to friends, to community, are happier, they're physically healthier, and they live longer than people who are less well-connected. And the experience of loneliness turns out to be toxic. People who are more isolated than they want to be from others find that they are less happy, their health declines earlier in midlife, their brain functioning declines sooner and they live shorter lives than people who are not lonely. And the sad fact is that at any given time, more than one in five Americans will report that they're lonely. And we know that you can be lonely in a crowd and you can be lonely in a marriage, So the second big lesson that we learned is that it's not just the number of friends you have and it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship, but it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. It turns out that living in the midst of conflict is really bad for our health. High-conflict marriages, for example, without much affection, turn out to be very bad for our health, perhaps worse than getting divorced and living in the midst of good, warm relationships, is protective. Once we had followed our men all the way into their 80s, we wanted to look back at them at midlife and to see if we could predict who was going to grow into a happy, healthy octogenarian and who wasn't. And when we gathered together everything we knew about them at age 50, it wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how they were going to grow old. It was how satisfied they were in their relationships. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. And good, close relationships seem to buffer us from some of the slings and arrows of getting old. Our most happily partnered men and women reported in their 80s that on the days when they had more physical pain, their moods stayed just as happy. But the people who were in unhappy relationships on the days when they reported more physical pain, it was magnified by more emotional pain. And the third big lesson that we learn about relationships and our health is that good relationships don't just protect our bodies, they protect our brains. It turns out that being in a securely attached relationship to another person in your 80s is protective, that the people who are in relationships where they really feel they can count on the other person in times of need, those people's memories stay sharper longer. And the people in relationships where they feel they really can't count on the other one, those are the people who experience earlier memory decline. And those good relationships, they don't have to be smooth all the time. Some of our octogenarian couples could bicker with each other day in and day out. But as long as they felt that they could really count on the other when the going got tough, those arguments didn't take a toll on their memories. So this message that good, close relationships are good for our health and well-being, this is wisdom that's as old as the hills. Why is this so hard to get and so easy to ignore? Well, we're human. What we'd really like is a quick fix, something we can get that'll make our lives good and keep them that way. Relationships are messy, and they're complicated, and the the hard work of tending to family and friends, that's not sexy or glamorous. It's also lifelong. It never ends. The people in our 75-year study who were the happiest in retirement were the people who had actively worked to replace workmates with new playmates. Just like the millennials in that recent survey, many of our men, when they were starting out as young adults, really believed that fame and wealth and high achievement were what they needed to go after to have a good life. But over and over, over these 75 years, our study has shown that the people who fared the best were the people who leaned into relationships with family, with friends, with community. So what about you? Let's say you're 25, or you're 40, or you're 60. What might leaning into relationships even look like? Well, the possibilities are practically endless. It might be something as simple as replacing screen time with people time, or livening up a stale relationship by doing something new together long walks or date nights or reaching out to that family member who you haven't spoken to in years because those all-too-common family feuds take a terrible toll on the people who hold the grudges. I'd like to close with a quote from Mark Twain. More than a century ago, he was looking back on his life, and he wrote this. There isn't time, so brief is life, for bickerings, apologies, heart burnings, callings to account. There is only time for loving, and but an instant, so to speak, for that. The good life is built with good relationships. Thank you. <laughs>
1: All right, that's a great talk. You know, he opens up the talk with if you were going to invest in your future best self, where would you put your time and your energy? Well, based on that 75 year study that is still ongoing, it's clear that you need to invest your time, effort, and energy into developing and maintaining your relationships. Because it is not a surprise, like he said in his talk, that loneliness kills. High conflict marriages can kill you, whereas healthy marriages will protect you. I mean, not only will they protect you, they they even trump certain things like heart disease and cholesterol levels and things like that. If you had some bad health numbers, but yet you are in a protective, loving marriage, you're going to live a lot longer and healthier and happier than if you have the best physical numbers in the world but you're yelling and screaming and high conflict relationships all throughout your life. I mean, that stress will kill you. And now we just listen to scientific evidence to prove as much. So where do we go from here? Well, I want to continue to drive home a theme that is recurring throughout all of the episodes of Hack Stack, And that is that you can always improve from where you're at. You can always get better. And relationships are no different. But there is sort of a persistent thought that a lot of folks have when it comes to relationships and that's one of a fixed mindset right and that's one of those things that people think well this relationship's either going to work or it's not it either has what it takes or it doesn't there's either chemistry there or there's not when the truth of the matter is it takes work to make a relationship well work it's not necessarily not fun work or hard work But it does take a certain amount of effort to keep a relationship going. And again, to drive that point home, I'm going to play another clip. And this is from a book that we've already played clips for on prior episodes. But it's called uh, Mindset, and it's by Carol Dweck. And the major concept of the book is people fall into two broad categories. They either have a fixed mindset or they have a growth mindset. A fixed mindset is either you've got it or you don't. And a growth mindset, which is basically the mindset and the idea we talk about on this show. Uh, the growth mindset is that you can always get better in your whatever it is. In this case, we're talking about relationships. So I'm going to play a clip from that book dealing with relationships. And I hope that this further drives the point home that these are learnable skills. So check this out.
2: Each one a loser. Penelope's friends sat at home complaining that there were no good men. Penelope went out and found them. Each time, she would find a great guy and fall head over heels. "'He's the one,' she'd tell her friends as she began reading the bridal magazines and practically writing the announcement for the local paper. They'd believe her because he was always a guy with a lot going for him. But then something would happen. It was over for one of them when he got her a tacky birthday present. Another put ketchup on his food and sometimes wore white shoes. Another had bad electronic habits— his cell phone etiquette was poor, and he watched too much TV. And this is only a partial list. Assuming traits were fixed, Penelope would decide that she couldn't live with these flaws. But most of these were not deep or serious character problems that couldn't be addressed with a little communication. My husband and I had been together almost a year, and, as my birthday approached, I sent a clear message. I'm not mercenary, but I like a good present. He said, "'Isn't it the thought that counts?' I replied, That's what people say when they don't want to have to put thought into it. Once a year, I continued, we each have our day. I love you and I plan to put time and effort into choosing a present for you. I would like you to do that for me, too. He's never let me down. Penelope assumed that somewhere out there was someone who was already perfect. Relationship expert Daniel Wiles says that choosing a partner is choosing a set of problems. There are no problem-free candidates. The trick is to acknowledge each other's limitations and build from there. Agreeing on everything It's strange to believe in mind-reading, but it makes sense when you realize that many people with a fixed mindset believe that a couple should share all of each other's views. If you do, then you don't need communication. You can just assume your partner sees things the way you do. Raymond Nee and his colleagues had couples come in and discuss their views of their relationship. Those with the fixed mindset felt threatened and hostile after talking about even minor discrepancies in how they and their partner saw their relationship. Even the minor discrepancy threatened their belief that they shared all of each other's views. It's impossible for a couple to share all of each other's assumptions and expectations. One may assume the wife will stop working and be supported, the other that she will be an equal breadwinner. One may assume they will have a house in the suburbs— the other that they will have a bohemian love nest. Michael and Robin had just finished college and were about to get married. He was the bohemian love nest type. He imagined that after they were married, they'd enjoy the young, hip Greenwich Village life together. So when he found the ideal apartment, he thought she'd be delighted. When she saw it, she went berserk. She'd been living in crummy little apartments all her life, and here it was all over again. Married people were supposed to live in nice houses with new cars parked outside. They both felt betrayed, and it didn't get any better from there. Couples may erroneously believe they agree on each person's rights and duties. Fill in the blank. As a husband, I have a right to, and my wife has the duty to. As a wife, I have a right to, and my husband has the duty to. Few things can make partners more furious than having their rights violated, And few things can make a partner more furious than having the other feel entitled to something you don't think is coming to them. John Gottman reports, I've interviewed newlywed men who told me with pride, I'm not going to wash the dishes, no way. That's a woman's job. Two years later, the same guys ask me, why don't my wife and I have sex anymore? Now, a couple may agree on traditional roles. That's up to them. But that's different from assuming it as an entitlement. When Janet, a financial analyst, "'And Phil, a real estate agent, met. "'He had just gotten a new apartment "'and was thinking he'd like to have a housewarming party, "'a dinner for a bunch of friends. "'When Janet said, let's do it, he was thrilled. "'Her emphasis was on the S, the us. "'Because she was the more experienced cook and party giver, however, "'she did most of the preparation, and she did it gladly. "'She was delighted to see how happy he was to be having this event. "'The problem started after the guests arrived.' Phil just went to the party. He acted like a guest, like she was supposed to continue doing all the work. She was enraged. The mature thing to do would have been to take him aside to have a discussion. Instead, she decided to teach him a lesson. She, too, went to the party. Fortunately, entitlement and retaliation did not become a pattern in their relationship. Communication did. In the future, things were discussed, not assumed. After all, there are so many professions in which interpersonal skills play a key role—teacher, psychologists, administrators, diplomats—but no matter how hard Bloom tried, he couldn't find any agreed-upon way of measuring social ability. Sometimes we're not even sure it's an ability. When we see people with outstanding interpersonal skills, we don't really think of them as gifted. We think of them as cool people or charming people. When we see a great marriage relationship— We don't say these people are brilliant relationship makers. We say they're fine people, or they have chemistry. Meaning what? Meaning that, as a society, we don't understand relationship skills. Yet everything is at stake in people's relationships. Maybe that's why Daniel Goleman's emotional intelligence struck such a responsive chord. It said, there are social-emotional skills, and I can tell you what they are. Mindsets add another dimension— They help us understand even more about why people often don't learn the skills they need or use the skills they have. Why people throw themselves so hopefully into new relationships only to undermine themselves. Why love often turns into a battlefield where the carnage is staggering. And most important, they help us understand why some people are able to build lasting and satisfying relationships. Mindsets Falling in Love So far, having a fixed mindset has meant believing your personal traits are fixed. But in relationships, two more things enter the picture—your partner and the relationship itself. Now, you can have a fixed mindset about three things. You can believe that your qualities are fixed, your partner's qualities are fixed, and the relationship's qualities are fixed. That it's inherently good or bad, meant to be or not meant to be. Now, all of these things are up for judgment— The growth mindset says all of these things can be developed. All, you, your partner, and the relationship, are capable of growth and change. In the fixed mindset, the ideal is instant, perfect, and perpetual compatibility, like it was meant to be, like riding off into the sunset, like they lived happily ever after. Many people want to feel their relationship is special and just not some chance occurrence. That seems okay, so what's the problem with the fixed mindset there are two one if you work at it it wasn't meant to be one problem is that people with the fixed mindset expect everything good to happen automatically it's not that the partners will work to help each other solve their problems or gain skills it's that this will magically occur through their love sort of the way it happened to sleeping beauty whose coma was cured by her prince's kiss or to cinderella whose miserable life was suddenly transformed by her prince. Charlene's friends told her about Max, the new musician in town. He had come to play cello with the symphony orchestra. The next night, Charlene and her friends went to see the orchestra's performance, and when they went backstage afterward, Max took Charlene's hand and said, Next time, let's make it longer. She was taken with his intense romantic air, and he was taken with her charming manner and exotic looks. As they went out, the intensity grew. They seemed to understand each other deeply. They enjoyed the same things—food, analyzing people, travel. They both thought, where have you been all my life? Over time, though, Max became moody. Actually, that's how he was. It just didn't show at first. When he was in a bad mood, he wanted to be left alone. Charlene wanted to talk about what was bothering him, but that irritated him. Just leave me alone he would insist, more and more forcefully. Charlene, however, would feel shut out. Plus, his moods didn't always happen at convenient times. Sometimes the couple was scheduled to go out. Sometimes they had planned a special dinner alone. Either he didn't want to do it, or she would endure his sullen silence throughout the evening. If she tried to make light conversation, he would be disappointed in her. I thought you understood me friends seeing how much they cared about each other urged them to work on this problem but they both felt with great sorrow that if the relationship were the right one they wouldn't have to work so hard if it were the right relationship they would just be able to understand and honor each other's needs so they grew apart and eventually broke up in the growth mindset there may still be that exciting initial combustion but people in this mindset don't expect magic They believe that a good, lasting relationship comes from effort and from working through inevitable differences. But those with the fixed mindset don't buy that. Remember the fixed mindset idea that if you have ability, you shouldn't have to work hard? This is the same belief applied to relationships. If you're compatible, everything should just come naturally. Every single relationship expert disagrees with this.
1: Okay, I like that clip. And there (laughs) there was actually one part when I first heard that, that I literally laughed out loud as I was listening to it in the car. And I don't know, it probably wasn't intended that way. And maybe it was inappropriate, but I just found it as humorous. And that's when the story is recounted about the husband that like refused to do the dishes. Like, there's no way I'm going to do the dishes. Uh, That's not, that's a woman's job. And then like later he's like trying to figure out why don't I have sex anymore? Like, I don't know, it just struck me as funny that it it seemed pretty obvious. But I guess that's a problem with relationships, right? Some things are really obvious uh, from the outside looking in. But when you're the one that's involved in it, sometimes things are a little cloudy and it's kind of hard to figure out. But that's what we're here for. We're here to get better at things like that, to be aware of uh, the opposite sex and try to figure out some of the nuances. And that is the main point of this show. We are going to start to make progress, Right? We are going to start to invest time and effort to become better at relationships. And to set the stage for that, I'm actually going to play a clip. Uh, I believe this is from a marriage conference, but the guy is really, really funny. This is a clip by Mark Gunger, and he talks about the difference between a woman's brain and a man's brain. So here you go.
3: Now, I believe marriage is a life-giving institution. We live in a culture today that believes marriage is a life-sucking institution. It will suck the life out of you. All right? And that's why we say, make sure you're old enough. Make sure you have enough money. Make sure you have enough education. Make sure you've been dating for 37 years first. Make sure that, you know, get all this stuff. Why? you got to get everything together and ready so that when you say, I do, you can withstand the, ah! (laughs) But it's not that way It'll give you life If you'll do it right If you do this right Marriage can be the closest thing to heaven on earth If you do it wrong (laughs) Well, you fill in the blanks Okay, so now (laughs) We're going to start discussing Men's brains, women's brains And how they're very different from each other Now, I want to start with men's brains Alright, now men's brains are, are very unique. Men's brains are made up of little boxes. And we have a box for everything. We've got a box for the car. We've got a box for the money. We've got a box for the job. We've got a box for you. We've got a box for the kids. We've got a box for your mother somewhere in the basement. we got, <laughs> we got... We, we got boxes everywhere. And, and the rule is, the boxes don't touch. <laughs> When a man discusses a particular subject, we go to that particular box, we pull that box out, we open the box, we discuss only what is in that box. All right? And and, and then we close the box and put it away being very, very careful not to touch any other boxes. Now women's brains are very, very different from men's brains. Women's brains are made up of a big ball of wire, and everything is connected to everything. Zzz, the money's connected to the car, and the car's connected to your job, and your kids are connected to your mother, and everything's connected to everything. It's like It's like the internet superhighway, okay? And, and it's all driven by energy that we call emotion. It's, just... it's, it's It's one of the reasons why women tend to remember everything. Because if you take an event and you connect it to an emotion, it burns in your memory and you can remember it forever. The same thing happens for men. It just doesn't happen very often because, quite frankly, we don't care. (laughs) Uh, Women tend to care about everything. And she just loves it. (laughs) Okay? Now men, we have a box in our brain that most women are not aware of. This particular box has nothing in it. It's true. It's true. In fact, we call it the nothing box. And of all the boxes a man has in his brain, the nothing box is our favorite box. (laughs) If a man has a chance, he'll go to his nothing box every time. That's why a man can do something seemingly completely brain dead for hours on end. You know, like fishing. And, and, and we love it. That's, that's why a guy can sit in front of a TV and go. <laughs> uh, it glows. Uh. Of course, this drives our wives nuts because they'll come up and say, Stop it! You can't possibly be watching anything! I'm not. Go away. Now they've actually measured this. The University of Pennsylvania a couple of years ago did a study and discovered that men have the ability to think about absolutely nothing... And still breathe. <laughs> you know, they connected all the wires and stuff like that and watched the brain activity, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> I think he's dead. Huh? You know, women can't do it, they can't do it. Their minds never stop, <laughs> and, and they don't understand the nothing box. And it drives them crazy. Because nothing drives a woman more crazy or makes her feel more irritated than to witness a man doing nothing. Now one of the biggest revelations I get out of women is this whole nothing box issue. They just everything's starting to make sense. (laughs) And I've had women say, oh, it's nothing. Can I go in his nothing box with him? No! No. (laughs) Why not? Because then it's something. Besides, you'll walk in there and go, You know, know, this place could really use some pictures. (laughs) Nice little table over here, some flowers. No! Nothing! Get out! We don't want nothing. Now, this handles the way men, men and women handle stress. Okay? When a man is stressed out, all he wants to do is run to his nothing box. This is how we unwind. The last thing we want to do when we're stressed out is talk about it. We don't want to talk about it. We just want to... Of course, it just drives her nuts, you know. A woman will see a man in that vegetative state and she'll come up and go... What you thinking about? Nothing. We got anything about something. No, nice I about nothing. In fact, I was on a roll till you showed up. Go away! All right? Because that's how he handles stress. He just...
1: All right, that's pretty good stuff. The nothing box. It's where us guys like to go sometime to recharge. And that really sets up well the next clip that I'm going to play. This is from the Andy Savage podcast. I call it my Dark Horse podcast because no one has heard of it, but yet I get a ton of good content from this one podcast. I call it the best podcast you've never heard of. And Andy Savage is a pastor out of, uh, I think he's from Tennessee, and his entire podcast is about parenting or marriage and relationships, and that's the, the main theme of his podcast. And listening to that one day, I came across this episode, and it's about marriage, and Andy Savage interviews a couple that wrote a book called, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti which is a pretty funny name but you'll uh, after listening to that nothing box clip I think you start to get the get the hang of where we're going with this and why am I playing this clip well to get better at relationships there's a few things that you need to do to start to achieve that goal you need to empathize and understand uh, the person you are in relationship with and then you actually need to Pick up on practical tips of things that you can use in your life to become better. And then when you do those things enough, they start to become second nature. And that's when growth occurs. And I personally have found no better way to become more skilled at this than listening to experts in a given field and many different experts and picking up on the things that they do and trying to apply those Uh, directly into my life so that's what we're going to do right now Uh, we're going to listen to the Andy Savage show and this episode talks about uh, relationships in particular husband and wife and marriage so let's play the clip right now
4: you have found the Andy Savage Show, so we want you to stay close to your, to your radio today. This is going to be a great show. And uh, I opened with this question of, uh, if your spouse were food, what kind of food would he or she be? And this is a great question. And uh, it's a fun question. And I'm not going to answer quite yet. Um, we're going to talk to some very special guests who, quite honestly, uh, should have been guest on this show like two years ago. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bill and Pam Farrell to the Andy Savage Show. Hey, Bill and Pam, how are you guys?
5: We
6: are good.
4: Man, this is overdue,
5: guys. (laughs) You know, it's always overdue
6: coming on your show because we so appreciate spending time with you.
4: Well, you guys are incredible. And today we're talking about this book that you guys have written that has made incredible uh, impact in people's lives called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti.
1: It, it's
5: been fun to see uh, you know no matter where we travel around the world what country what city what county what community people really care about relationships and men are like waffles and like spaghetti is now in 14 different languages
4: oh my gosh and
5: those gender differences they show up everywhere around the
4: globe wow 14 different languages right so listeners as you're as you're listening let me just make sure you know who these fine people are they are uh, constantly on radio programs and uh, doing interviews all over the place, and they are uh, great, just gracious to give us time today. So, you want to get on Twitter today? Get on there right now as you're listening, and go to Twitter and find B Farrell. B, the letter B is in Bill, and then Farrell, F A R R E L. That's his Twitter handle at Bill at, at B Farrell and at Pam Farrell follow them on twitter you won't you won't want to miss that this last night i was checking up on a few things on twitter and actually sent my wife the the challenge pam that you have issued to wives i sent that to her
5: Red Hot Wife Challenge starting August fifth. That, That's right.
4: So, so you, all the wives, all the all the ladies listening, you need to you need to get on this challenge. I, I know your husbands will appreciate it.
5: <laughs> Definitely, some happy husbands out there. And you know what? God boomerangs that love right back, and it becomes happy wives as well.
6: People love to be married. They love the idea of being in love with another individual, and then they get married and they find out they don't know exactly how this works. Mm. And the way I like to describe it is we, we live pretty close to a, a military base that flies jets. And if I were to take you today and stick you in one of those jets and told you, you need to fly this thing. Well, if you don't know how and you haven't been trained, you're going to get stressed and overwhelmed really fast. Man, so if that... you learn how to fly the plane, you get to go for the ride of your life.
4: That's right. That's so true. And, and... that's
6: the way marriage is.
4: And are you guys finding – I do I do quite a bit with married couples and and love the opportunity to invest in couples. But it seems like today that the phenomenon you're talking about, this lack of skill set, seems to be more rampant than ever.
6: It appears that way to me. I'd like to give you one example. The most important element of interpersonal communication are nonverbal clues that we give to one another. Mm-hmm. And with the advent of technology and social media, people's ability to read
5: nonverbals has actually gone down. Wow. It's hard for people to read people's emotions, read their spouse's feelings, to have that intuitive, you know, my back's turned to you, so I might not be interested in what you have to say, or my face sounds like this unpleasant look on it, so maybe you hurt my feelings, we do see that this um, is impacting, The technology is impacting um, our ability to get along with one another. And it's definitely important because men and women are very different in the way that God wired us. And so we need to understand what those differences are and how to make those differences work for us in all of our relationships.
4: Now, this book: Men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. The title is a little strange to most people. <laughs> You're comparing people to food, which I think is great—a great concept. Honestly, I love food. I love this whole idea. But you have a there's a real meaning in all of this. And why don't you give our listeners just a kind of an overview of this concept of waffles and spaghetti?
6: Okay, so let me start with the men. If, if you were to diagram the way a typical man processes information in life, it looks like the top of a waffle. There's a number of boxes, and all those boxes are separated from one another by walls. And the way we as men process life is the first issue in life goes in the first box, the second issue goes in the second box, the third issue goes in the third box, and so on. And we as men, we spend time in one box at a time in one box only. So when a man is at work, he is literally at work. (laughs) When a man is doing yard work, he is doing yard work. When a man is watching TV, he is watching TV. When he's
5: listening to you, Andy, he is just listening right. to that's you. That's it. That's it. <laughs> it's
6: laser focused. And and so as and as, as we mature as men, we do jump boxes faster than we used to so we can handle more responsibility. It almost looks like multitasking, but in reality, we're just jumping boxes faster than we used to. And because of this single focus that men tend to bring to life, we are problem solvers by nature. That we like to go into a box figure out what the problem is, assign a solution to it, and then move on. And if we get to a box and we see what the problem is and we don't know what the solution is, we just move on.
5: Mm. (laughs) Because
6: we just can't possibly think of a reason to spend time on a problem we have no insight on. Wow. And so we just separate out the issues of life, and we like to deal with them one at a time, which is really good for the family because some of the issues the family faces needs a single focus in order to determine what to do about it. Mm but it creates some pretty significant tension in our relationships because, well, these ladies that we love just don't process like a waffle.
4: Mm. So, Pam, spaghetti.
5: (laughs) When you look at a plate of spaghetti um, and you follow one noodle around that plate, it looks like that noodle touches pretty much every other noodle on that plate. And that's the way we women process life is we travel through life making emotional connections to the people and things that matter most to us. And it's called, you know multitasking for now. Now it's called toggle tasking. They keep renaming it, but it basically is moving from thing to thing to thing, subject to subject to subject, people, 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 and it's all connected. It's all intertwined in the way that God wired us and our, with all of our hormones and all. And so because of that, we women are amazing multitaskers. I mean, we can be on the phone with our friend and her life's all falling apart and you know, we're listening to Andy, give his great wisdom. At the same time, you know, we are um, cooking dinner, and we've got a load in the washer, a load in the dryer. We can open and shut the oven door with our foot. We're like amazing multitaskers, and, um, which is a gift to the family, to the community, to the church, to the workplace. But sometimes that multitasking thing in communication can cause some frustration.
4: Absolutely, and go ahead, Bill.
5: Well, as guys,
6: you know we, we love the sound of our wife's voice, but then they drive us crazy with some of the conversations we have, you know so they'll, they'll, they'll come in and ask things like, "You honey, how's your truck running?" You know Well, I thought about your truck today because I drove by your favorite truck store because I was on my way to go buy this new outfit because I found an outfit that I knew was going to look really good on me because it's my color because we learned all about what colors look good on you and what colors don't look good on you, and I figured I was kind of a spring palette. and So I found this yellow outfit that I knew was going to look really good on me, which is good because when I look good, my confidence is up, and when my confidence is up, I think clearer. When I think clearer, I make better decisions, and that makes me easier to live with. And, and I think it's funny, it's, it, this this color was the same color that Mrs. Obama wore during the inauguration. I don't know if you remember that. She went from inaugural ball to inaugural ball, and the, the second dress she wore was kind of that yellowish dress. So it was that same color, that, which I think is really funny, me and the first lady. You know, we kind of have the same color palette. And And, you know, it actually reminded me of the same color that Brazil was wearing yesterday in the soccer game. And I thought that was so sad. You know, Germany just, like, really beat them up pretty good. And I don't know if you saw the crowd, but the crowd was just, like, distressed. And a lot of them looked like they just, like, their lives had fallen apart. And it reminded me of a lot of our friends who have been facing struggles, and they feel like their lives kind of fallen apart. And I think it would be okay if we just spend a little bit of time right now praying for our friends. And while these ladies have these conversations with us, us men are frantically jumping boxes, Woo! trying yeah. to figure out where this conversation's going. Yeah, and what's
4: wrong with my truck? That's, that's what right. I keep thinking. Like,
6: we're, exactly, we're right. stuck on the truck. Yeah.
4: Oh my goodness, that's so true. <laughs> that is so true. Now, guys, I read. Uh, men are like waffles. Women are like spaghetti. I actually listened to the audiobook version a year and a half. no two years ago. Now it was two. Oh, I can't believe it's two years. Two years ago. And I'm in this stuff. I'm in the game with you guys. I'm. I read everything on marriage. I, l- I look at every website. I'm in this stuff, and and that book is not brand new, but it is phenomenal. The stuff inside it is just so rich. Every chapter. Some you know some books lose you in the middle. You didn't lose me in the middle. Right. It was fantastic all the way through. As I'm driving to and from work, listening to this thing, I have a, pr- a decent little commute, and and that 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 constant wisdom just it kept confirming and affirming things and challenging me. And, and it, it, it was one of those books that was like immediately made me a better husband. Mm. And, and, I, and I try pretty hard at this thing. And I think about our listeners out there today who have t- probably tried to read a marriage book before. They have tried to be a better husband, to be a better wife. And I'm just going to tell our listeners, you need to get a copy of Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti, and just trust us. Trust us that it's, a, it's the kind of book that will give you what I like to call handles on truth. It allows you to hold on to it and put it into your life. And what I love about you guys is you make it easy for the average person to get it. And, and man, I need that in my life.
5: We try to put a lot of humor in. And so if, you know, if anyone in the audience is like, well, I might read the book. I'm not sure my spouse would. Here's the deal. Buy the book. Start reading the funny sidebars out loud when you're in the car with them, and then just set the book on the coffee table. You won't be able to find the book, and that's what we are hearing. I know mean, for a, about a decade now, um, couples have been helped and encouraged um, through men Are like waffles, and like spaghetti, because we share the realness, the mm. humor. You know that how this really impacts us on a daily basis, and how to take the tension out of your marriage, how to take that stress down a few pegs by just having an appreciation about the way that God wired your husband, your wife, that's different from you. You know, a lot of times Bill likes to quote his favorite theologian.
6: That's Rocky Balboa.
4: Hey, come on, come on.
6: You know, when he was, uh, he was dating Adrian and, and Polly, Adrian's brother, was concerned about the relationship, so he approached Rocky one day and he said, hey, what are do you doing with my sister? And Rocky's response was something like, um, I got gaps, she got gaps, together we fill gaps, which is pretty good relationship advice because all of us in life have gaps. And God puts us in relationship with other people so that as a team we can help fill in some of those
5: gaps. And that's why God made us different. It, it's not like this scary cosmic like mistake, rather God did it. On purpose, he intended us to be different, so we could complement rather than compete. We can complement each other.
4: That's so good. And I want to ask you a question because it seems like things like this. I get I get this response all the time when I recommend marriage books, or I recommend a, a marriage website, or a blog, or some or some article. I will get couples who have been married maybe fifteen years, twenty years, or more, that will say, um, "That's really for the younger crowd." Sure. That's not for me. We've been married long enough, or maybe we've been married too long. And there's this sense that maybe at a certain length of time, people sort of give up on growing in their marriage. I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
5: You know, let me just share an illustration with Bill's help on this. There's one slide in our PowerPoint that explains um, how men process um, life.
6: Right, I, be, because like women have a hard time realizing that men aren't as verbal as women are. And so I explained it. Some of the boxes on our waffles, but there's thoughts rolling around inside there, but they don't translate into sentences. And so, so sometimes men just make noises. And we'll just go, woo, yeah,
5: woo.
6: Yeah, and so instead of words, we just, we just verbalize with noises. Mm. And then a few of the boxes on our waffle are actually blank. There's no thoughts there. There's no words. And we as men, we just park in those blank boxes with that you know, wonderful blank look on our face. And our wives always feel the need, when we're in those blank boxes, to ask the dreaded question.
5: So, what you thinking, hon?
6: <laughs> which is a hard question for us, because we tried telling them the truth. We said, nothing. And the response we get is, well, you can't be thinking nothing, you have to be thinking something, so what is it? And, and part of our ministry is to tell people all over that men have the ability to think absolutely nothing, and there's nothing wrong with it
5: and after one conference a gentleman came up to bill and he had he had gray hair he had been married for multiple generations i mean multiple decades and he just walked up to bill and said he said
6: thank you thank you thank you you just stopped months of arguments in my home <laughs> and then disappeared
5: and so it's like oftentimes there's these key truths that um, we need at every age and stage. You know, I know that men are like waffles like spaghetti and that impacted me as a newlywed. Um, What are those differences in the way that we reduce stress and the way we romance? When we start parenting, how do we approach parenting that's different and how can we make those differences work for us? Now we've launched our kids and the way we release our kids into college and adulthood, that our gender even impacts that. And um, as we hit those midlife years and the changing hormones, it's a good thing that Bill knows what's going on in this midlife woman's body um, because a lot changes. And the same, uh, it's important for me to know what's going on in, as testosterone lowers in, in a guy's body in life's second half. So there's always room to grow and improve because as people and as couples, we're always changing.
6: And I have two thoughts to your question, Andy. The the reason why people need to keep growing, first of all, is as Pam said, marriage changes about every seven years. Mm. And with our physical changes and life, uh, life events that come along, the relationship actually renews itself every seven years. And so if you're growing along with the growth of your life, marriage stays a really good experience. And if you stop growing in your marriage, life can kind of outdistance your skills. And so is important because God set it up to where our relationships renew every seven years. And my other thought is there are some things in life that are so basic that we need to be reminded of them over and over again because we tend to move away from them. Like, like as men, we tend to think that our wives are buddies who look better than all of our other friends. But in reality, she's a woman who focuses on life very different than we do. And so we need to constantly be reminded that she's not wrong, she's different. That's so good. need to hear that will never go away.
4: That's so good. We are talking to Bill and Pam Farrell, authors of Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti, the next book you need to be reading. And I encourage you to go get that, go on Amazon, go anywhere books are sold, but you can also go to their website. It's lovewise.com, but there's a dash in between love and wise, -wise love-wise.com. And I hope that you will look up and follow Bill and Pam Farrell and know uh, this kind of wisdom that is needed for your life. That you would take that in. That you would uh, listen, and you would bring this kind of truth into your life. Because the one thing and you guys said it at the top of the show is we need uh, we need the most important relationships of our lives to be to have focus on those, to grow, to improve them. Because everybody wants their marriage to be good. That's right. Nobody wants to have a bad marriage. That's right. And so you guys are talking about these incredible differences that God has wired into men and women. And it affects how we communicate. It affects how we relate. But there's this arena that I would love for you to speak on. I know y'all speak on it all over the world, and how husbands and wives romance one another differently because of this.
1: <laughs>
5: yeah, we do, and it's kind of it's connected to how we process stress too. So we're I'm gonna link them together here, how we women process stress is we talk our way through stress. Like when I'm stressed out, my mom knows it, my sister knows it, my best friend knows it, the clerk at Walmart will know it. <laughs> you know, I talk our way through stress. That's what women do. But how guys like to process stress is they like to to their favorite easy boxes to rest and recharge. It's kind of like a battery sitting in a battery recharger. When you look at a battery sitting in a battery recharger, what's it look like it's doing? Nothing but it's doing something, it's recharging. Mm. So guys have their favorite recharger boxes. Um, but God kind of helped us girls out so we could recognize these recharger boxes um, because they're shaped like boxes when you think about it. The TV screen is shaped like a box. The computer screen is shaped like a box. The World Cup soccer you know net is shaped like a box. Um, the pool table is shaped like a box. Um, the refrigerator is shaped like a box. The way to a man's heart is still through his stomach. And the bed is shaped like a box.
4: Amen. That,
5: that bed box, uh, that box for intimacy is a favorite box for husbands to go to. It's kind of like the free square in the middle of a bingo card and they can get there from every other square on their waffle and so one way to romance a husband is to tie together his favorite easy boxes and so if I wanted to romance Bill all three of our boys played football as did Bill and um, American football and um, so two tickets to you know a football game Tennessee Titans maybe And um, then maybe his favorite place to eat would be box number two. Um, And then box number three would be like every guy's favorite box, that bingo box. In fact, Andy, he would give away those uh, Charger tickets or those Titan tickets to you if he could make sure that that bingo box was going to happen that night.
4: I believe it.
6: (laughs) And the key thing for us men is that we want to know when when we're being romanced, we want to know that we can succeed at it. Mm. If it gets too complicated, or if there's too many nuances, or too much guesswork, we start to feel like we, you know, we're not going to succeed at this, and so we lose interest. But when we want to romance our wives, it's all about connections, because their whole life is connected. Uh, that, that's why when women enter conversation, they often enter it recreationally. Like if I was to say to you, Hey, Andy, you want to go play golf? And we went and played a round of golf. We would go, Man, that was great.
5: And I might ask Bill. Hey, so what would you talk about when you were with Andy, you know, and golfing?
6: Say we talked about golf. Like, is that it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So we went golfing. And um, and we would not go back and analyze everything we did on the golf course. We would just say we had a great time golfing. Yeah. And that's the way conversation is with women is often it's just conversational. They, or it's recreational. They just want to have fun having a conversation.
5: And we want all the details.
6: Whereas men, we're always looking for the point. But what's the main point? What did you try to drive at? And so part of romance is taking time to listen to her and just connecting her life together with our life. And when we when we think about planning romantic dates for them, we want to think in terms of making connections. So when you think about, does she like flowers and what's her favorite flowers? What's her favorite music? Where does she like, what kind of place does she like to go? And we just tie those things together. Like I, I encourage guys, if, if you can't really afford to do much, but you want to take a simple date and turn it into a pretty big event for your wife. Um, if you have a simple Friday night date, if you if you contact her a week before, either shoot her an email, send her a, a note in the mail that says, would you spend Friday night with me? Because it would make my, my week if we could spend some time together. And then on Tuesday, just check in. Are we free? Are we good to go? Like, Can, can we make this happen? On Wednesday, give her some guidelines on how to dress appropriately wherever it is you're going to take her, because women always like to be dressed appropriately where they're going. On Friday, just go out for a simple date, enjoy the evening together, and on Saturday, drop a thank you note in the mail that she gets the following Monday or Tuesday. You will have taken a simple date and tied together a week full of memories for her, and it'll probably get you about six months of of romance points.
5: That's right. And bonus, double bonus points if the husband arranges the childcare. Woo!
6: Right. And the reason why it works is you're making connections into her life.
5: We have to know how to value those differences and In fact, one of the simple things that God says is to accept one another in love. Mm. And when we accept these differences and see how can we work together to benefit our marriage, to benefit our kids, to benefit our grandkids, the workplace, the church, as we can value these differences, then everything works smoother in our life and our love.
6: And I know, Andy, I was kind of set free when I realized I don't need to understand Pam. I just need to accept her. Wow. Because trying to accept her and all of her nuances and all the beauty of being a woman, that, that's like an impossible thing for us guys. Yeah. But if I learn to accept her in the same way that I, I accept my computer and I accept my smartphone and I accept my automobile, I don't understand everything about those in my life. Like, I can't tell you exactly how a computer works. But but I like using my computer. Mm. I like having it in my life. So I accept that it brings value to me. And when I take that attitude towards Pam, this is a pretty good journey. If I put the pressure on myself to actually understand her, I set myself up for failure.
5: So appreciation it's all about appreciating your spouse and and that's really why both genders really value encouraging words. And um there's a really powerful illustration that um, came from our honeymoon. Um, I stepped out of the shower and I was blow drying my hair and I began to criticize myself from head to toe pointing at all the flaws I thought were in my 20 year old frame.
6: And Andy, you know, those moments in your relationship when you're totally lost and you start to panic because you kind of see things going down downhill quickly. That's where I was at with Pam. I'm like, oh man, here she is. She's She's criticizing herself. She's going to get self-conscious and depressed. And like, this is going to ruin our honeymoon. I can't believe this is happening.
5: But instead, he and shot up a prayer. I said,
6: God, can you help me out? Because I'm about to get really upset with the woman that I love most on earth. Mm. And this thought crossed my mind that I know came from the Holy Spirit. And it simply said, Bill, you could do a better job than the mirror's doing right now.
5: So instead oh, wow. he was angry, he came over and he wrapped his arms around me and he said...
6: I said, Pam, let me be your mirror. If you need to know how beautiful you are and what a great woman of God you are, you come see me and I'll tell you. Oh, wow. And if I have to break every mirror in our house to get you to believe me, I will.
1: Oh, man. Isn't that great? <laughs> that last thing the husband did. Hey, let me be your mirror. Let me tell you how beautiful you are. Like I heard that. I'm going to write that down. I don't know if I'll get a chance to use it, but that, that's that's amazing stuff right there. And it's not amazing because it's some sort of cheesy trick or, or corny pickup line. It's amazing because it's, it's actually true. I mean, ideally, husbands think their wives are beautiful and women have a lot of insecurities. So for him to say that is, is just amazing. Now, I, I feel that same way. I think my wife is beautiful. Sometimes she's insecure. And I don't know what to do sometimes about that. But now after listening to that podcast and hearing that, I have something tangible that I can say and that I can do. Again, I genuinely feel that way, but now I actually have something that I could say. I have a better method or better way to communicate my true feelings. Because you know the deal, right? Sometimes it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So I don't know. I just thought that was amazing what that husband did. And what are the other things you picked up from the episode, right? The other little things are, well... Women are like spaghetti; they like everything touching together and related, and you thinking about them. So the way that husband planned a date, asking out a week ahead, sending little invitations, arranging childcare—you know, even the even the thank you note afterwards—that's that's a little much. But you get the concept. The husband is going out of his way to show that the wife is always on his mind. And by the same token, what did the what did the wife do for the husband? She let the husband do the things that he wanted to do. Go out to dinner, go to a football game, go fishing, go to the middle of the bingo board. (laughs) I mean, all of those things. So if you combine like these little tips from books or from podcasts that you hear, and then you sort of tweak it a little bit. You know how we talked about becoming a student of yourself in earlier podcasts? Well, when you become a student of the people you care about, And you combine, I don't know, that study, for lack of a better term, with some of these techniques and you, I don't know (laughs) what's the best way to do it, you like customize your skill set toward the people you really care about. I mean, that's what I'm talking about when I say put in effort. And I hesitate to say the word work because work has a, a negative connotation sometimes. But if you put in the effort, it can actually be fun. So anyway, that is the main point. Listen to some of these things and try to figure out if there's a practical way that you can apply them to your life. Now, I don't want to leave you hanging because hopefully you enjoyed that, that clip. And they mentioned that they do a lot of talk about parenting. Well, the next episode was about parenting, and they had a lot of little tips and tricks and hacks in that podcast as well. So I'm going to go ahead and play that show for you as well. And you'll start to notice that the same theme applies. If you want to be a better parent, well, what do you do? You become a student of your child. You study your child. And any parents out there that have more than one child, you know you can have completely different temperaments of children. Introverted, super outgoing, uh, academic, sportsy, and every combination in between. So how do you become a better parent? Well, the same way you become a better husband or wife. You study that relationship you keep an eye out and an ear out for ways that you can improve upon that relationship and then you act on it. So we're going to play this clip again from the Andy Savage show so you can start to do the same thing uh, if you have kids. And if you don't have kids, you can still pick up a ton of information from this. You know, Lessons about leadership and becoming a learner and things like that. So don't want to spoil it too much, but check out this clip and we will close up the show afterwards.
4: Well, today, we are talking about this subject. We've talked about marriage. That's uh, fresh on people's minds. Everybody wants a good marriage. But as close to and maybe sometimes even more important, at least it feels that way sometimes, is what do we do with these kids?
6: <laughs>
4: and, and I'm telling you, this this is going to be therapeutic for me. My wife and I are going to listen to this and apply these things. We have I don't know if I've even updated you guys. We have five boys.
5: Woo-hoo. That's why we bonded. We have three, and you kept yeah. being brave, and now you have five. <laughs> no,
4: we weren't brave. We weren't brave, but we were romantic, and I will say there
5: that.
4: We go. <laughs> but uh, but we ended up with five boys, and our 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 latest child, uh, Joshua, our most recent, is just a year old. So uh, we're we're in the midst of parenting from ages ten to one uh, right oh. now, and so man, when, when I look at this title, "The Ten Best Decisions a Parent Can Make," I am I'm like. Please, tell me 20 best decisions a a parent can make. So uh, I don't know why you stopped your book at 10, but probably because you need to write a second version of this. But uh, this is also a book that you guys have available. People can get this book. Tell us how we can get a hold of this book.
5: At www.love-wise.com. Um, Our ministry is um, love-wise because we're trying to intersect love and wisdom. Mm -hmm. So people's lives and their relationships are a little calmer, a little better, a little richer. I mean, we all live for relationships. Really, that's what life's all about.
4: That's so good. Well, let's talk about these 10 best decisions a parent can make. And why don't you just go ahead and just maybe start by telling us a little bit about your family. You just mentioned you have three boys. I've met one of your sons. Uh, He's an enormous— piece of meat. He's a huge, like gladiator-looking guy. And and yeah. Bill, he kind of looks like you, but he's like twice your size, man. He's yeah, huge. He's
6: our Captain of America.
5: Yeah. yeah. We have three three athletes sons. Two are now coaches. One is a coach at a large high school, head football coach. The other is a um, strength performance coach. That's the one you met at a university. And then our third just graduated um, with an engineering degree and they all have finished their master's. The third one is working on his master's degree right now and, um, so they're all very different from one another, but the common trait is all all five of us love athletics. So that's like a common thing. Um, and we encourage families, you know, the families that play together, stay together, the families that pray together, stay together. And so find something y'all love doing together. Um, that's, that's like a side bonus. It's not really one of the key decisions, but deciding to be proactive is. And so we take the active literally.
6: And we realized pretty early on, Andy, that none of us got the music gene. But we all got the genes, so we decided to go in that direction.
5: And, you know, one of the key decisions that goes with that, decide to be proactive, is, you know, we have to look at what kind of parents did we have. Were they great parents? Hey, let's duplicate that. Let's add to that. Let's, you know, stand on their shoulders and make our family even better. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for handing us a great legacy. Or, like Bill and I, that's not really the legacy that we came from. You know, I'm the firstborn daughter of an alcoholic dad with severe rage issues. I always thought that our family might make the headlines, but not for a good reason. More like man shoots family than shoots himself. A lot of domestic violence in the home that I grew up in. And then Bill...
6: I I grew up in a home where my mom was a dominant personality, but has struggled with a mental illness most of her life. And so most of the decisions in my home growing up were made out of fear. And so my instincts teach me to make decisions out of fear. And to those of you who are listening, the the more dysfunction you had in the home growing up, the more deliberate you have to be as a parent. And the healthier the home you grew up in, the more you can rely on your instincts.
5: Yeah, your mom and dad taught you some really great things. Your grandma and your grandpa maybe taught you some really great things. If you had a healthy family, that is awesome. Uh, Our son, Brock, um, and his beautiful wife, Hannah, uh, took us out to um, coffee, and we have three grandchildren now, um, six, four, and two, and they just wanted to thank us for the heritage that we gave to them and said, Mom and Dad, we're going to add to it. You handed us a great legacy, and here are some ways that we want you to support us as parents um, so we can add to what you have already given to us. I mean, we're both crying, I mean, those are moments that you long for as parents. But some of us have to be very proactive and say, wait a minute, let's look at um, what happened in our homes of origin. If there's good things, like my dad's great work ethic, let's keep that. If there's crazy things, like my dad's alcoholism or his you know, domestic violence anger, we need to replace that. I don't want that repeated in my home. And so... Just sometimes there's some very basic things, basic questions that we need to ask ourselves. What do we want to keep? What do we want to replace? And how can we do that? Mm,
4: that's so good. We're listening to Bill and Pam Farrell, authors of a gazillion books. But one of them that we're talking about today is the 10 best decisions a parent can make. And I know all of us with kids are desperate to know some of the secrets. If there are secrets, we want to know them. We want to do a great job with our kids. And the wisdom that Bill and Pam are talking about today, uh, and I I love that they call their ministry Love Wise because there is a need for us to bring wisdom into relationships. I think we live in a culture, and I think the Pharaohs would agree, that does not support wise relationships. It supports (laughs) emotionalism and just doing whatever foolishness we want to do. And there's this call to come back to wisdom and saying, God, what do you say about our family? How do you say we should raise our kids? What's the right path to be on? And these – truths that you're sharing today are the kinds of things parents need to hear. And and honestly, uh, probably more uh, more rampant than ever, more more common than ever, uh, are people who have children today, kid, folks my age, have kids today that didn't necessarily have the kind of home that they want to replace. And there's a lot of catching up to do when it comes to parenting.
1: Yep.
6: So I would say kind of the core decision that, that will help parents... Uh, more than anything else, is deciding to build character in your kids' lives. Mm -hmm. Because if your kids develop character, they can be trusted. If they develop character, they're going to be better decision makers. If they develop character, they're they're going to think through what they're doing in their life much better than if they're just running by instinct.
5: And, you know, science is backing up. That contention that Bill just said just read you know, Huffington Post article the number one thing missing in this generation um, is the ability to make good decisions because they haven 't been taught character by their families of origin, and so th- its really is that at the hub of great parenting is that decision to um, build character and how it happened in our lives is I was a new mom, I had a little newborn, I was rocking him in my arms. And I began to pray, you know, God, it seems like Bill's a youth ministry, and when I look at those hundreds of kids that Bill works with, some of them seem to really soar at 18, and some of them really seem to crash and burn. Like, what's the difference? And as I began to look at those healthy families, I wrote down about a hundred traits of things that, uh, practical skills, character qualities, leadership traits— that I thought needed to be in a young life so they could soar by the time they're 18. And when Bill came home from work that day, I showed him this long list. I'm like, look at all this stuff.
6: And one of the things I love about Pam is that she come up with 100 things that we need to build into our kids' lives. <laughs>
5: but then I was really overwhelmed. So I'm like, by 18, we're supposed to get all this stuff done, hon?
6: Yep. And Bill, so I prayed for wisdom, and I looked at the list, and I said, Pam, you know, it looks like this list that you've made, which is awesome, falls into three categories. That first, we want our kids to be learners. But in this highly technological age where information is flying at us all the time, we want our kids to have an attitude that every week of their life they're going to learn something new that's valuable. Mm. Second, we want our kids to be leaders, that in their own way and in their, their sphere of influence, we want them not to just be following the crowd, but to be deliberate in deciding how they're going to live and lead their peers in that direction. And then we want them to love God for themselves. We don't just want them to love God because we do. We want them to, to, to find a personal experience with Jesus that's real for them and and have a true love for Him. So those became our three goals for our kids, learners and leaders who love God.
5: And so I, I said, okay, you know, I want our kids to be learners and leaders that love God, but I don't, don't want our kids to think they're born into, like, boot camp, barrel yep. boot camp here. God, how can I make this fun? And so we decided to have a Learner Leader Day once a year, right before school started. And on that day, we would do a fun activity. We call it Forced Feral Family Fun. So a fun activity. And then... uh, I created this with Bill, this worksheet that's called a learner and leader worksheet that we, it's a contract, we negotiate privileges and responsibilities with each one of our kids, and then Tempest Decisions and Parent Can Make Book. We have a list of what kids can do at different ages and stages, and mom and dad, they can do it much more than you think they can. Our goal is to, you know, work ourselves out of a job as parents. And um, then we would choose one trait, one leadership trait off of that list to focus on for that one child that year. And then we would um, choose a verse to pray over that child that um, had tied to that leadership quality. And um, when the kids started reading age six, you know, we would take them to BibleGateway.com or Logos and let them choose their own verse. Um, And then we would that makes it like Christmas or a birthday is we give them a learner-leader gift, something that applauds, you know, that that uniqueness, that passion, that calling, that strength, that main talent we saw um, God developing in that particular child. And that gift was three things. It was practical, something we would buy anyway, you know, backpack, lunchbox. It, mm-hmm. it was personal, it was something that was like I thought of you, son. It's not cookie cutter. Everybody didn't get the same thing every year. And then it's prophetic or it speaks to the potential of that child. And um, so every year we would do a Learner Leader Day and then give a gift.
6: And, and I found, Annie, the key to that Learner and Leader thing is we picked one character trait for the year. Yeah. And what parents tend to do is we get overwhelmed. You know, We have to teach them this and that and this and that, and that. And we overwhelm the kids with good stuff. But what we discovered is if you work on one trait this year, it's like a magnet that draws other character traits to it. Mm, So if we're working on honesty this year, it will bring responsibility, it will bring respect, um, it will bring initiative. Wow! And so it becomes a magnet that helps you develop the other things you know your kids need.
4: Man, I'm stealing that today.
5: Um, you know, one of our kids was kind of rough around the edges. One of those kids that used his like shirt for a napkin or a Kleenex or like, Oh, no, that's one all my kids. Come on. Him. Yeah. And so, um, We said, being a gentleman, that's what he needs this year, being a gentleman. And so I taught him little manners classes. And, you know, Zach, you walk on the outside on the street so the car hits you, not the girl. You know, just crazy stuff. Which fork to use. All that, you know, basic manners. Stand up when a woman enters the room. There's not enough chairs. um, What to do. Well, so Zach came to me, and he was about 10 when this was going on, and he's like, Mom, I know you hate it when I burp. What if I do my science fair project on what makes you burp, and I'm, then I'll give it up? I'm like, good call. Well, he won the science fair for the whole school. Oh, wow. And then afterwards, um, they had a birthday party for one of the girls, and there weren't enough chairs. And so my Zachary elbows his older brother, like, I know what to do here, so my boys stand up and give the chairs to the moms. But my friend Tammy, she didn't take a chair. She ran right to the phone. She called me. She's like, I think there's hope. Zach might get married someday.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's incredible. I'm not kidding. I'm stealing that today. I've got to (laughs) go home and start working on this.
6: And, And the challenge we hear all the time, Andy, is wow, that sounds like a lot of work. And I would admit, yes, it's a lot of work, but no matter what you do in parenting, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of –
4: everything's a lot of work. It's a lot of work dealing with all the problems that come with misbehaving children, too. That's right. That's right. Like,
6: okay. hey, and so, so the, the question really is what kind of work do we want to do, not how much work are we going to That's do? That's right. No matter what we do. We're going to work hard at parenting.
5: You know, and I, I don't know about you, Andy, but uh, you know, there's always at least one of your kids that's a little bit of a challenge. Can sure, an amen here. amen. And so, one of the things that we did um, that's a little bit creative is that same that same sack, um, he was a little bit of a talent to raise. Like he was our kid when he was 18 months old. We heard our older son Brock saying, he's doing it again. And sure enough, Zach had climbed over a six foot fence and he was caught by his diaper trying to run away. I was mean, just always stuff like that that was going on. And um, when he was about eight, he was doing really well with this whole learner leader thing. until oh, he just started spiraling down. Bad attitudes, bad grades. It was just like negative around our house. And so, um, and did
6: Pam say he was beating everybody up? Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Because he wasn't yeah. very
5: verbal. So when he was upset, he would beat everybody up. We had this medical issue that he couldn't control, and so he had this underlying anger that was going on. And one day I walked into the living room, and he was beating up his brothers again. I'm like, Zachary, honey, this is inappropriate. And I said it in a whisper because my parents used to yell, so that was one of the things I replaced. And so I grabbed his little face, and I'm like, honey, this is inappropriate. If you um, are upset, you go upstairs. Mama, come talk to you. And so he runs up the stairs. He knocks all the stuff off the walls, all the pictures down. He slams the door. He picks up a baseball. He puts it through the door, hole in the door as I walk in. I'm like, Zach, honey, you can't do this because I'm thinking in my mind, no woman is ever going to marry you. You're going to live with me forever. You can't do this. Zach, use words. And so he puts his hands on his little eight-year-old hips. He's like, you want words? You want words? Well, I hate myself and I hate my life. And if God made me, I hate him too. And I said, just a minute. And I ran downstairs and I threw myself across the bed. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a pastor's wife. I'm a director of women's ministry. I read all these Christian books. I'm raising this little wild man of an atheist upstairs. I could use some help here, God. Uh, God, I know that Zach the treasure, but he can't see the treasure and I can't see the treasure. Help me help Zach see the treasure. And when I said the word treasure, I'm like, Oh, that might work. So I drew up this treasure map and I marched it upstairs. I'm like, Zach, you are a treasure to the world, I said by faith. And every day you and Daddy and God and I we're gonna go on this big treasure hunt. And I'm gonna ask you two things every day. What's one thing you did well today and what's one thing positive about your day? And we're gonna write it down on this treasure map. At the end of six weeks, son. Mom and Dad, we're going to give you X amount of dollars to buy a resource to live out your treasure. What do you think? This is stupid. So, like, Zach, what's one thing positive about your day? I don't know. I'm like, Zach, I can think of something. You're alive, meaning I haven't killed you yet, kid. (laughs) And so um, we wrote, Zach is alive. That was the first thing on that treasure map. Well, then this amazing thing started happening, like this miracle. He started seeing all positive things about himself and his day and filling up that treasure map. At the end of that six weeks, we found out some things about Zach, that he was great at sports. We knew that that he loved music. We had no idea. It was like a calming balm to his little ADD soul. And he loved people. Yeah, kind of threw us off track because he beat everybody up. And so from that... Which is
6: an interesting point, Andy. Often our kids are awkward in their gifts early on. Mm. Like Zach has a gift with people, but it overwhelmed him, so he beat people up. Wow.
5: And so we, you know, invested in some uh, baseball equipment. He made the All-Stars that year. We bought two tickets to a Christian concert so he could take a friend. And from that point on, we always invested him and a friend. Whatever the youth group or, you know, the community group was doing, they always had a friend to make good choices with. Because people, relationship was the key that unlocked Zach's heart. Well, fast forward, riding an elevator down in Dallas, Texas about 10 years ago, Zach's co-ed cheer team had just won nationals. They were going to be filmed by ESPN. We get on the elevator. This little boy, about seven, gets on with us. He is out of control. He is pushing all the buttons. He is bumping in all the people. His sweet single mom is just exhausted by the child. And Bonnie has to deal with him, so she says, Zachary. And I'm like, oh, you're a Zach. I have a Zach. He's just like you. He's like ADD, ADHD. He, uh, he has a club, and only little boys like, you can be in it. It's called Hyper for God, because he, he found out you can use Hyper for good and not just evil. And, you know, he used to have these and Absalom stuff when he was your age, but he used to hyper for good. Now he has straight A's. And University of Louisville just offered him a scholarship to come be their captain. You know, they're the number one cheer team in the nation. You want to come meet my Zach? And no kidding, the mom just pushed the kid aside and said, I don't know about him, but I want to meet your Zach. I want to see that miracle. Mm.
6: And that's just the thing. Often with our kids. We need some kind of a breakthrough, a miracle that that just gets through the the difficulty of our kids and helps us to see the treasure that's in them so we can capitalize on their gifts rather than be frustrated by their behavior.
4: That's so good. Again, we're listening to Bill and Pam Farrell talking about the 10 best decisions a parent can make and uh, the wisdom of raising three boys, sending them out into the world, and they're they 're alive and well and they 're not harming society this is this is a huge <laughs> success story here we're listening to and bill I have a and pam I, don't, I, I I relate with you a lot bill as a pastor as a as a young father raising kids a young husband um I want to know and this is not, this is not in the script anywhere. I just want to know how did you navigate being the the father the pastor's uh you know having pastors kids having ki- being a pastor and being a dad. How did you navigate some of those issues that we so often see happen where f- kids who either are children of a pastor or they grew up in a, a heavily religious home, lots of Christianity all around them, oftentimes they, they take the opposite path? Right. How did you handle that?
6: Well, there were two things we did. First of all, we celebrated the advantages. Like Because of a, a pastor's schedule, we got to do things that other families didn't get to do. Like, often I would take my kids to the local zoo here on a Tuesday, Mm. because everybody else was working, and and I was able to take that day off, and we would go to the zoo and kind of had it to ourselves.
5: And we would point out, hey, isn't this an advantage? Because Dad's a pastor, we get to do these cool things.
6: Yeah. So we would celebrate the advantages of of having a pastor schedule. And then the other thing I did is I I never said to my kids, you have to do this because you're a pastor's kid. Mm. I said... You need to do this because you're a child of God. And it has nothing to do with what your dad does. This has to do with who you are made in the image of God. And
5: so we would always say, you know, this is what pharaohs do. And because you're a feral boy. Because we knew that they would always be a pharaoh boy. They may or may not always be a pastor's kid, depending on what God was going to do and lead and have us do sure. in our future. And so, but if they're a feral boy, and this is our core values as a family, we knew they could grab a hold of that.
6: Right. And then the other thing I did, Andy, that I would – this was a lot of work, but I would do it again in a heartbeat, is I put the burden on myself to become a student of my kids. Mm. So my oldest son, born for leadership, I knew the challenge with him is I got—I have to teach him how to be a leader without offending everybody in the process because for him, life's very black and white, and he was just born to lead. My middle son, he's wired for people, and and he could be very – Uh, He can be very susceptible to peer pressure, but at the same time, he's going to inspire a lot of people. So I had to teach him how to appropriately um, communicate with people and interact with people. My youngest son, his greatest trait and his worst trait is stubbornness. He, He will stay at a task until he overcomes every obstacle, but he can also dig his heels in and be very reticent to do anything. And I put the burden on me to be a student of them rather than putting the burden on them to live my lifestyle.
5: And one of the things that we do in 10 Best Decisions a parent can make is we actually have five or six different quizzes so you can get to know the treasure that's inside your child, get to know their uniquenesses, their strengths, their passions, their calling. That way, um, not all kids are raised exactly the same. Mm. You know, sometimes we have to tweak and adapt and personalize God's Word um, for that child to really help them at that moment.
4: It's great. we got about two minutes left, and I want to ask you a question that may come from a different angle. Okay. If your kids were on the show with us right now, what would they say were some of the most important decisions you made as parents raising them?
5: Well, we actually asked our son, um, Brock, to preach when he was 18 on graduation Sunday. We said, you know, Mom and Dad, because of our dysfunction, there's many things that we didn't do right and we would do again um, a different way. But what are those three things that we did that you appreciate and value? Um, And let's have you talk to the congregation about that and the three things that Brock said that day.
6: The first one was thanks for disciplining me because I noticed my peers don't have self-discipline. And because I've developed self-discipline in my life, opportunities have been available that they didn't get to do. So thanks for disciplining me.
5: You like, let your yes be yes and your no be no.
6: Second was thank you for giving me a dream big enough to sacrifice for.
5: To make good choices for.
6: That, that we were committed to help them find the God-given dream that was in their heart. And they recognized that that was the big thing.
5: And the last one is thanks for praying for us. Every day as you drove us to school, every morning over breakfast, at night as you put us to bed, whenever we had decisions to make, mom, you were in, mom's in prayer group. Thanks for praying for us. Brock said it felt like when I was in high school in particular that there was like a force field around me. I couldn't sin because your prayers were inhibiting me, you know, going the wrong direction.
6: And the other thing that I think you'd hear from our kids is thanks for not giving up on us. Mm. That especially from the one that was difficult to raise, he knew he was difficult for some seasons of his life and people were tempted to give up on him. Mm. And he would say, thanks for not giving up. In
5: fact, when we asked Zach to speak, you know, to parents, he says, keep looking for the treasure in your child because you mom and dad might be the only people looking. Mm.
4: What a good word. I think parents who are listening to this today, can can take those things and immediately apply them and say, man, we need to be doing this with our kids. And parenting can be so uh, discouraging at times. And we can feel overwhelmed by just the whirlwind of the day. We're just trying to get to the end of the day and get them in bed and hopefully they'll sleep all night, you know. (laughs) But there's there's what you guys have described is this this version of parenting that that is a little bit, that seems a little bit like it's more work and it's, and it's, a, it's more intentional and it's more deliberate in, in phrases like studying your child. Uh, those are foreign concepts to so many parents mm-hmm. that need to hear this today and know that this journey of parenting, what I like to call the 7,000 days journey of parenting. Mm-hmm. It, it's something we have to be intentional on And every single day matters. We, we don't get a, we don't get a day off. We have to be parents for this whole journey, and this is an opportunity that we can take and say, we're going to give our children our best, we're going to work hard at this, and we're going to make some good decisions on behalf of our children. There are no, There's no such thing as a perfect parent, but there can be parents that get better and better and better at the job.
6: That's right, and there's no deeper satisfaction on earth than knowing that you're doing a decent job as
5: a parent. You will put in the work. It's either going to be ahead of time you know, in intensity and preventative, or um, life will require it from you as a parent. If you didn't do things right or you didn't cooperate with God, um, it's more work to raise your grandchildren, or it's more work to keep, you know, having to call up a lawyer. Um, so we just encourage parents to do the work early and enjoy the benefits.
4: Absolutely. Well, we've been listening to Bill and Pam Farrell.
1: So there was some really cool ideas in that clip. First and foremost, just a perspective thing. I like how the lady was talking about how her dad was an alcoholic. And and just think about that for a moment. There is so many reasons to be bitter and angry about that. And I'm sure at some point in her life she was, but she chose to sort of discard the bad traits and focus on some of the positive traits that her dad had and sort of keep those and then teach those good traits to her children. So it's just a really interesting concept about sorting out the the good from your parents and sifting away some of the bad, less desirable traits that your parents uh, may have had. And let's be honest, I mean, nobody's perfect. Uh, Most parents are trying to do the best job they can they made a decision as a couple to focus on the good qualities of their parents and uh, throw away the bad qualities and sort of leave that legacy and build that legacy into their kids. So what is the main takeaway from this episode of hack Stack? What is your hack homework, if you will? Well, Andy Savage mentioned it. He said, you know what, I'm going to write these down. Oh, I'm so going to steal these ideas. And And that's what I actually want you to do. I want you to start to steal these ideas and write them down. Like create some sort of system for writing some of these things down. I don't care if it's a a memo on your iPhone or use your notepad or have a piece of paper down when you hear something good, scribble down a little note, write it on a post-it. I don't care. Just come up with some system. When you hear something that resonates with you and is really good, make note of it. So at a future point, you can actually take action on that. And that's how you grow. Like as a parent, some of the things that we just heard, man, I love the idea of like sitting your kids down right before school starts and have like a parent-child like summit. Like it's a big meeting and you actually talk about what you're going to work on, you know, what character trait you're going to work on with your child the following school year. And as a parent, there's limited time to really, really teach your kid. I think they mentioned that um, in those clips, you know, it was like 7,000 days, okay? You got 7,000 days and counting and each day that slips away is one less day and one less opportunity to teach your child. So if you can take advantage of those days and slight edge that in a good way and teach your child a little bit every day and think of those as precious limited moments in realizing that you may not see the benefit Or the reward from that, or even even the acknowledgement of that, for years and years down the road. I mean, think about the the couple that was just interviewed, and all the time and energy that they invested into their children, and then years later on whatever graduation day that the kid gives a little speech, and he just thanks his parents up and down for the good job that they did. And the the kid even mentioned, like, "Thank you for disciplining me." Like, obviously, when the discipline was happening. The kid didn't like it. But later on in life, he realized how important that was. So again, when you come across a good idea that you hear from some other source, whether it's a book or a podcast or a friend or a blog or whatever, write it down. So a few episodes ago, we talked about the importance of questions. Well, here's, here's a couple of questions that, that just surfaced from this clip. You know, the mom's trying to break through to her strong-willed child and, and she asked them, you know, what is one thing you did well today? What was one positive thing about your day? So that, that's, that's two questions right there. And as the lady uh, tells the story, the child was really reluctant, kind of a brat about the whole process. But then, you know, a week later, two weeks later, all of a sudden things start to change. Things start to turn around. And at the end of a day, as a parent, you, you are going to work either way. That's another key concept, right? You're either going to work on the front end, trying to train your child, Or you're going to work on the back end trying to repair damage. So if you have to work either way, you might as well put in the good work up front. And that's kind of the theme of this podcast. Put the work on the front end, steal some of these ideas, and use them and grow in your relationships. Don't just sit there and say, oh yeah, that's kind of a cool idea. Like Whenever that light goes off in your head, write it down, note it somehow, and take action. And start to develop your hack list. And before you know it, that list will grow. You'll have parent hacks. You'll have husband hacks, wife hacks, work hacks, life hacks, et cetera, et cetera. So that's it. Do the work. Put these things into action and start fortifying those healthy, strong relationships. Now, next episode, we're going to continue on that same vein and we're going to keep studying and we're going to keep trying to become a better student of the people we love. But until then, take some healthy action and we'll see you around next time.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.